0: I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to learnwithdreemily.com slash schools to get started. Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com, or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. Hey y'all, in this week's podcast we are going to be talking about the idea that you don't have to be a special educator to teach a neurodiverse group of learners. If you are an elementary educator, you are already teaching a neurodiverse group of learners. So there are going to be things that come up that you feel like you don't know how to do or you need to consult with colleagues. So I want you to know you don't have to have a special education degree, but there are three things that I do believe are key to your mindset as an educator of neurodiverse learners. So first, I want to walk you through, before I get to my three things, I want to walk you through how we got here. So over the last 50 years, American classrooms have become more and more neurodiverse. This is both a good thing and a hard thing. 47 years ago, Public Law 94-142 was passed by Congress, ensuring that all children have a right to a, quote, free appropriate public education, which emphasizes special education and related services designed to meet their unique needs, end quote. So at the time, the law was entitled the Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975 and stated that, quote, handicapped children receive special education and related services in the least restrictive environment commensurate with their needs, end quote. In other words, children should be educated with their same age classmates as much as possible as determined by that student's individualized education plan or IEP team, which includes educators and parents, And of course, if you're following this, in 1997, the law was renamed the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, and it was reauthorized in 2004 and amended in 2015. So there's precedent that it keeps evolving and changing. One thing I do want to point out here is that because there's an emphasis in the law that special education is named as students receiving special education should be educated in the least restrictive environment, all of our training programs and all of our mindsets around special education and general education has really effectively othered children who learn differently. And I want to challenge us by thinking about, okay, if all of these children are going to be in the least restrictive environment, there are many, many kids with neurodiverse needs who may be receiving special education on paper that need access to strategies and other ideas in the regular education classroom, but we have to make sure their teachers have those ideas and are thinking curiously and open-mindedly about how to support these children. So while we celebrate the right of all children to have access to an education, we've been playing catch up really ever since 1975 to prepare teachers and educators to create a sound education for students with variable learning needs. So as I mentioned, teacher training has followed this precedent of general education and special education and kids being educated at different grades and different age groups or, you know, elementary, middle, and high school. So generally speaking, elementary school teachers either choose a teaching program to become a general education teacher or a special education teacher. Yet when we advocate for children to receive education in the least restrictive environment, this means that we're educating many neurodiverse learners in the general education classroom with teachers who may not have had the training on how to meet all students' needs. So, yes, many students are taught through a team approach with time learning from general education and special education teachers. Yet, there are so many classroom teachers I talk with who say they have only received one class in college or graduate school on managing behaviors which I also call students feeling overwhelmed with learning. Not to mention that there are lateral entry teachers, substitute teachers, and instructional assistants who may not have had any training on supporting neurodiverse learners. So we're really relying on professional development opportunities to help our teachers learn more as the field evolves and as our research and child development evolves. We also want to add on to this that teachers are very burned out after the pandemic and principals are faced with staffing issues because there are teachers who are leaving the profession. So a common misconception is that you actually need to have that special education degree to be an effective general ed teacher these days, but I actually don't believe that you do. General education teachers, listen up. You are already teaching a neurodiverse group of learners. Their needs may not be as significant as students being educated with an IEP, But building relationships, supporting emotional regulation, and implementing executive functioning strategies benefits all students. If you are an elementary educator tasked with teaching a neurodiverse group of learners, here are the top three things I think that are needed to be that effective educator. And they all have to do with shifting your mindset. Okay, so where do we go from here? As an elementary educator, I know you were faced with teaching a standardized curriculum to a group of very non-standardized brains. Curriculums are linear. They're built to be measured, but brains are not linear. So you have to know each child's unique needs, but it's hard to figure out when to support them or when to push for independence. You're also expected to emphasize a set of school-wide behavioral expectations that are attainable for some— but not for others, not because they're not trying hard enough, but because they simply don't have the impulse control or emotional regulation skills to manage the demands of learning yet. So if you're a teacher who wakes up worried about your students because you don't know how to help them, you're not alone and I'm here to help you. At times, you might even struggle with boundaries because you just want to help everyone so much, and so that's why you're exhausted, trying to figure it all out. So let's start by just focusing on these three things as you head into your summer. Number one, never stop learning because the kids are your teachers. I went to many years of graduate school to become a child psychologist, but I learned the most over the years, not actually in graduate school, but in the classrooms that I've worked in as a school psychologist. And in the 15 years after that, playing in the therapy room and consulting with parents and teachers. We gain knowledge and confidence with every single child we help, but no two kids are the same, so we also must rely on each other to share ideas to never stop learning. Your special education, school psychology, occupational therapy, and speech-language pathology colleagues are full of knowledge related to supporting unique learners and differentiating instruction for asynchronous student needs. I know you are encouraged to attend professional development on literacy, math, and STEM, But the elephant in the room is that none of that content can get into a student's brain if they are too stressed or disengaged to learn it. So I want you to attend as many professional development opportunities as you can on mental health, executive functioning, and learning how to support the anxiety of learners. I want to say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me. Thank you so much for being an educator. I see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day. In my work as a school psychologist, I know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students' needs. That's why I created two free resources for you. The Regulation Roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it and the Reframing Behavior Worksheet helps you problem-solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdoctoremily.com slash roster or learnwithdoctoremily.com slash reframingbehavior to get started. I wanna welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdoctoremily.com tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to learnwithdoctoremily.com tracker to get started. Okay, number two, get curious. So I want you to get curious about why kids are having a hard time rather than assuming that they're giving you a hard time. Yes, it is really hard to be in the room with a student who is experiencing a stress response that often comes out as physical aggression or verbal aggression. It's dysregulating for our own nervous systems and challenges us to keep our cool while keeping everyone safe. It's so hard. It's an even harder experience, though, for the child who is feeling it in their body. There are times when safety plans have to be in place, but I think there's always more we can do to prevent emotional overwhelm in the first place, rather than only responding to it. So let's get curious about what skill is lagging for that student. Behavior happens when the expectation is misaligned with the child's skill. However large that misalignment is, is usually the size of the stress response we get. So is the student uncomfortable with something in the environment and they don't know how to safely communicate their emotions? If that's the case, then we need to teach them to notice their uncomfortable feelings and come up with a developmentally appropriate plan to communicate those feelings to a trusted adult. Yes, we will miss some of these triggers and have to respond to stress responses or behaviors at times. But if we see a pattern, there's always something we can do to get ahead of it to prevent emotional overwhelm for everyone. When expectations are higher than student skills, we are met with a stress response. And that is what we see on the ground in the classroom as the behavior. Number three, you have to take exceptional care of yourself as a teacher because number one and number two take a lot of energy. So yes, you should be paid more, absolutely paid more, because you deserve to be respectfully compensated for all that you do. If you're still a teacher after the pandemic, I'm assuming your motivation for teaching goes beyond a paycheck. This is why I love teachers so much. Y'all just keep showing up and I'm here for it. You love to see a child's face light up when they finally figure out a concept or feel proud of themselves for accomplishing a new skill they have tried so hard to master. These moments are deeply rewarding. I see them in the therapy room. I see them when I work with kids and families. It's so rewarding to watch kids make progress and you love making a difference in the lives of children. But one thing I know to be true as a therapist and for teachers is that constantly pouring out compassionate care to others takes incredible amounts of energy from the helper. So you need to practice radical self-care. I'm not talking about manicures and pedicures and year-end teacher gifts. Those feel great and they're so appreciated, I know, but they're Band-Aids on a deeper fatigue that you likely feel as the compassionate giver. You must take exceptional care of your nervous system to make this teacher life sustainable. So back to basics here. Prioritizing your sleep, moving your body every day, staying hydrated, setting boundaries, knowing your physical and emotional cues for rest. Do something that brings you joy every day and ask your colleagues and family for help. These ideas are both simple and completely radical. We are all just a bunch of nervous systems walking around interacting with each other. You must have the energy to hold space for a child who is having a hard time while also problem solving a way to get ahead of it. If their emotional response has become a pattern, this takes a lot of energy, which you can learn to manage. Okay, y'all, let's stay connected and I will see you next week. This has been Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast. For more resources, including both parent, teacher, and school resources, visit learnwithdremily.com or read my substack at learnwithdrimily.substack.com. Also, we are publishing this podcast weekly, so make sure you're subscribed by pressing the plus, follow, or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by EarFluence. All information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have immediate concerns about your child, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King and we will keep learning together next week.